Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we analyze this week in Ontario politics with John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. And now that the election has come and gone, voter turnout here in Ontario was the lowest in history. How accurate was the polling versus the results? And this weekend marks 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine, but is support for Ukraine starting to fade? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Day after, of course, an Ontario uh, government elected yesterday uh, with a great big exclamation mark after that. Doug Ford, of course, and the PCs will go back to the House with a much bigger majority than they had during the uh, the last election. And we're going to talk about that extensively on the program today, as you might expect, uh, with a lot of input uh, from various folks uh, and try to explain exactly what has happened. And the, there is going to be, of course, a lot of collateral damage to that uh, last night. Uh, Doug's success, Doug Ford's success, rather, uh, has led to the resignation of uh, two of the other party leaders, of course, uh, the NDP's Andrew Horvath and the Liberals' uh, Stephen Del Duca. As Global's uh, Brittany Rosen reports, uh, it's uh, been a very transitional night for all of the leaders. While Ontario's NDPs will live on as the official opposition, Andrea Horvath's fourth attempt also ended in defeat. While she plans to keep her seat in Hamilton Centre, Horvath announced she'll be stepping down as party leader. I'm going to keep working to earn your confidence each and every day. I'm going to keep doing that. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton. Defeat was also felt by Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who failed to reach party status, losing the race for his home riding of Vaughn Woodbridge to PC incumbent Michael Tibolo. He also plans to resign as the party's frontman. I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. That was a bit of a shocker. Uh, uh, Thanks so much for the report, Brittany. There had been a lot of speculation, of course, uh, I guess over the last couple of weeks, really, uh, about Andrea Horvath's future, and uh, she kind of hinted at that. I know we had our panel discussion last night as we uh, kicked off our election coverage uh, and uh, the, the topic of Andrew Horvath came up, and I, I mentioned at that time, I said, I th- she's already written a resignation speech. Uh, I really, I said, because the, the stories we were hearing is, if you, she wasn't going to become premier, she will, there's, they, they want her to step down. And there's been a lot of internal pressure, too, that, uh, of course, you don't talk about that when you're doing the, uh, the concession speech. Uh, but that seemed to be uh, the, 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 something where the die had been cast on quite some time. You either win or you're out. Uh, which is pretty harsh, but that's politics, I guess. Anyway, to uh, decipher that and a lot of other things happened last night during the campaign. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Best, a publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Uh, were you surprised last night by the turnout and by the result? Uh, no, I, I certainly wasn't surprised at the result. I mean, the polls had been telling us that right from the get-go. If there, if there was a, a slight surprise, I suppose it is that Ford ended up with over 40% of the of the vote when uh, most of the polls were talking 37 38 39 so slight variation there uh, but at the local results uh, i think were pretty much uh, to be expected we we knew that hamilton east stony creek was going to be in play and uh, just overall uh, uh, i i would say probably the Conservatives picked up three or four more seats than than had been predicted uh, provincially. But it was pretty much, a, let's face it, I mean, the polls uh, were pretty much telling the story from two weeks before the writ was dropped. So not, not a big surprise. 
I guess I guess the other the, the one area that would be a surprise though is I thought the Liberals would do a little better. I thought they would return to uh, official party status, and the fact that they were only able to squeak out one more seat than they had uh, that that that's a crushing uh, defeat for that party, and they they really have to get back to the drawing board and figure out who they are. What do you read into that? Uh, um, it's one thing to, I guess, rationalize this, say, okay, they got tired of Kathleen Wynne, uh, let's boot her out, which they did, of course, and Doug Ford won that election a few years ago. Uh, but there's still something going on there with the Liberals, and uh, have they lost touch with the electorate? I mean, you know, this, this this was a party that was in power for a number of years and seemed to be resonating. I, I don't know if Kathleen Wynne is going to, I guess, shoulder all the blame for that. Uh, for some of her policies. Uh, the, some of the liberal insiders I've talked to said she'd moved the party way too far to the left uh, for the uh, the comfort of a lot of liberals who I think f all of a sudden, especially in this election, John, started to kind of feel comfortable with Doug Ford. You know, this was a guy that, uh, you know, when he first took office and when he, you know, won the election, not this one, but the one before, uh, there were the stories, you know, he was Mike Harris reinvented and there were all sorts of things about that. Well, he's not the bogeyman anymore. Uh, he gets along fine with Justin Trudeau, apparently, and he, he and Christia Freeland have a great relationship. So I think disenchanted liberals kind of felt comfortable, like, yeah, we can park our vote here. And I think that's what happened yesterday. I talked to a party uh, uh, worker uh, today and uh, uh, about the, the race in Hamilton East Stony Creek. And uh, the comment was uh, the people that used to vote for Tony Valeri voted for Neil Lumsden. Um, th there's a message here for not only the provincial liberals who are really in, in terrible shape, frankly, but I think there's a message here for the federal liberals as well that um, when, you, when you move the party to the extremes, um, especially to the left, people are going to vote NDP. They're, they'll vote for the real thing. They're, they're not going to vote for a party that's, that's trying to emulate uh, being like the NDP. So I, I think there's a there's a message here. Um, all all of these so-called issues, uh, the Highway 13, for instance, um, every riding that that road, if it ever gets built, is running through, uh, went totally blue, and that included two pickups from the other parties. So there there's something going on here in terms of ideology. Maybe we've reached the high water mark when it comes to. Uh, you know, identity politics and ideology. Maybe people having come through two years of the pandemic, they just want sensible, what we used to call good government. That, that may be uh, a big piece of this. But um, certainly uh, for the PCs, they picked up seats uh, in Windsor. They took two seats from the NDP. They picked up a seat in uh, a couple of seats in Northern Ontario that I think are are directly linked to, in one case, uh, getting a train going into northern Ontario. In the other case, I think it's the uh, this Ring of Fire project that Ford was talking about. Uh, you know, bread and butter issues seem to be a big piece of uh, what happened last night. Uh, there's a, another element that I wanted to run by you here, John. I, I'm, I'm getting the sense just from what I've heard on this show over the last number of years, and, and I'm talking federally and provincially, and probably we could even throw in some municipal aspects of this. I, I think voters are tired of extremist politics. I think they're tired of the sniping. Uh, they're tired of the people that are polarizing and, and 
uh, after a point, you just say enough is enough. Uh, and as Don Martin wrote in the National Post today, and I used a, the quote from my in my commentary earlier this morning, they looked at Doug Ford and they said, "Okay, here's a guy. He's he ran a campaign that was not too progressive and not too conservative." if you understand the contradiction there. And they felt comfortable with that. And not unlike what Bill Davis and John Robarts did. Uh, I'm not suggesting Doug Ford's going to be in power for 42 years like those guys were. But it was a comfort zone that I think he established. And I, I don't know if it was Doug Ford's idea or the party hierarchy that said this is the way we're going to run the campaign. But I think it's what voters were looking for right now. Like enough of the hype, enough of the BS. Uh, yeah, we, we think you know, you weren't great in this past term. You know, you didn't blow us away. You made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but, you know, we're tired of the polarization. You know, so yeah, yeah, let's build some roads. Let's get some jobs. And, and to that point, I think one of the other things that still has to be talked about here is the way that organized labor and unionized labor and high-skilled labor have gravitated to the conservative party. That's never happened before. We saw it here in Hamilton. Um, the NDP is going through a, a little bit of a crisis of... Um, uh, 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 existential crisis. It's not as bad as the provincial liberals, but we're now seeing a split between labor labor and white collar labor in, in terms of uh, supporting the NDP. Uh, so the people that build things and do things are, are now moving towards the conservatives because the conservatives are uh, launching all these uh, construction and, and all these projects that, that uh, appeal to uh, either uh, manufacturing workers or construction workers. And, and really the NDP is left with the teachers, the, uh, all, all the public sector unions. And uh, so it, it's kind of ironic in a sense uh, with, with Andrea Horvat that you know, she booted uh, what you'd call an old-time labor person in Paul Miller, but in a sense, she comes from that background as well. And what's left of of her caucus now are more of these downtown Toronto, um, you know, very uh, left uh, people. And to some degree, the party is is moving away from uh, the old line uh, uh, labor type people which sort of includes her. So um, it was interesting to see her comments last night. Um, you know, you, you sense that maybe some of that was resonating with her as well. Well, look at a couple of examples and you talked about here in Southern Ontario, and, and we saw this on some of the clips that have been running through the campaign. Uh, and, and one of the most influential air groups there is, is LIUNA, Labor's International Union. Uh, Joe Mancinelli, of course, who was uh, the, the, the head of that union. Uh, they have traditionally been liberal supporters, constantly, federally and provincially. Uh, Kathleen Wynne pissed them off in a big way, and, and he's moved over to Doug Ford and the Conservatives. And that's a huge amount of, of support, because you know, that's not just a, a local Hamilton entity. That's that's Canadian. That's North American. Uh, and and they, they, they have a lot of muscle. And I know that, you know, in some circles they were saying, well, these two highway projects are wrong because of this, but they're jobs. Uh, a lot of people in that union and other unions are going to be working for a long time on those highway projects. Uh, and, and the same thing with the auto workers. I mean, traditionally, as you say, that's been an NDP support. Uh, you know, going back to Buzz Hargrove and, and to see Jerry Dias, well, he's not there anymore, but the union is still there because uh, they're saying, hey, look at what he's bringing in here. Look at the investment. You know, when Doug Ford first started in his first six months, we were talking plant closures in Oshawa and other, the auto industry was in deep, deep peril. Now it's been rejuvenated and they figure, hey, you know, okay, he's got our back. 
you, you get some stuff like that. So some of it was serendipity, but I'm sure a lot of it was, was strategic to make sure that this is what happened. And, and they have turned the dynamic around here, as you say, about who's going to support whom these days. And, and I don't know if the other two parties didn't notice it and didn't realize the impact it was going to have, but I think it was a huge factor. Not only with the unions, but but that resonates br more broadly with the public. They see that. They see uh, this discussion about opening up the ring of fire, whatever that ends up being. But talking about, uh, you know, even if you're not in those unions, you're a, a citizen just paying attention. You see uh, a government that's on a, a, a building, a job creation uh, trajectory and then and then you hear you hear rhetoric uh, uh, from the others it's really just you know that's one of the disadvantages of being an opposition party you can make promises where Ford ran on his budget and uh, and and he didn't need a platform his platform was the budget and it had all kinds of job creating measures in it so really, when you look at the numbers uh, from last night, it's, it's probably not a surprise that he's increased his seat count. Uh, you know, the first time around, it was Kathleen Wynne that was on the ballot, and that was the ballot question. But uh, this time, he was running on his record, and he increased his seat count. I want to phrase this properly. I feel badly to a certain extent for Stephen Del Duca, who's only been on the job for two years. Uh, and, and I've historically i've my friend our friend steve pakin told me this some months ago that del duca wanted this job even before kathleen win left i think i think it was always part of his long-term plan and there's nothing the matter with ambition but he was the wrong guy at the wrong time for this party uh liberals and ndp tend to want somebody that they can really gravitate to that somebody can lead them who's inspiring and i i just don't think he strikes that chord not just with voters but with liberals you know, he made the best speech of the campaign with his concession speech last night. There was energy. There was a little bit of fire there. And um, I, I, I'm with you. I, as, as we get into the last day or two of these campaigns, I, maybe it's because I once ran and, and was not successful, but I always have a little bit of a soft spot for the people that you're pretty sure are not going to win. Uh, I looked around Hamilton here at some of the candidates that, that didn't win, and I'm talking about some of the new candidates who uh, who were recruited uh, mainly to run for the Liberals, but uh, some of the other parties. And you look at their credentials, and you say, you know, these are people that that really could do a good job if they could ever get elected. So there, and and you know, Del Duca. Let's face it, what what a rough slog he he. The one thing he did do. Uh, was uh, he erased the party's debt, and I think that's a, a miracle, really, for a party that got just absolutely crushed. So he, he's improved their finances, I and and I was prepared to come on this show today and say, well, he got them back to party status, but he didn't. So it's uh, it's you know when when you're down, you're down. Politics is rough and. Uh, this is reminiscent of some of those liberal leaders we had before Trudeau got elected. It's just uh, uh, really there's just no no good news about it at all. Well, I was thinking that very same thing last night, actually, John. I know we're almost out of time. Uh, you know, Paul Martin got booted out. And she had a lot more to do with uh, John Cretchen and, and the sponsorship scandal than it did with Paul Martin, although he was a great finance minister, not such a good prime minister. But then they went through Stefan Dion and Ignatieff, and they figured, you guys don't get it. Uh, you know, you need somebody, and 
who's who's going to you know spark something going on here. Uh, and on the other side of the coin, I think the, the, the conservatives, as Bill Davis said one time, uh, bland is good. Bland works in Ontario. And I think that's what they tried to do to Doug Ford. Pulled him back, get him away from the microphones, uh, and just, you know, be bland. And and, and that's, that's steady as she goes, I guess, seems to be the theme right now. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. There's a lot more to talk about here. Uh, you know, where Joe Duke is going to go, Andrew Horvath's future, but uh, we got a lot of time for that in the days ahead. Uh, as always, John, uh, thanks so much. Uh, the good news is we didn't have to stay up real late to find out what was going on last night. Uh, but no. there's a lot more to come on this. Uh, and uh, you have a great weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Nice talking. Okay, John Best, John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, with his rundown of what happened in the provincial election. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The day after, of course, an Ontario uh, government elected yesterday uh, with a great big exclamation mark after that. Doug Ford, of course, in the PCs will go back to the House with a much bigger majority than they had during the uh, the last election. And we're going to talk about that extensively on the program today, as you might expect, uh, with a lot of input uh, from various folks uh, and try to explain exactly what had happened. And the, there is going to be, of course, a lot of collateral damage to that uh, last night. Uh, Doug's success, Doug Ford's success, rather, uh, has led to the resignation of uh, two of the other party leaders, of course, uh, the NDP's Andrew Horvath and the Liberals' uh, Stephen Del Duca. As Global's uh, Brittany Rosen reports, uh, it's uh, been a very transitional night for all of the leaders. While Ontario's NDPs will live on as the official opposition, Andrea Horvath's fourth attempt also ended in defeat. While she plans to keep her seat in Hamilton Centre, Horvath announced she'll be stepping down as party leader. I'm going to keep working to earn your confidence each and every day. I'm going to keep doing that. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton. Defeat was also felt by Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who failed to reach party status, losing the race for his home riding of Vaughn Woodbridge to PC incumbent Michael Tibolo. He also plans to resign as the party's frontman. I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. That was a bit of a shocker. Uh, thanks so much for the report, Brittany. There had been a lot of speculation, of course, uh, I guess over the last couple of weeks, really, uh, about Andrea Horvath's future, and uh, she kind of hinted at that. I know when we had our panel discussion last night as we uh, kicked off our election coverage, uh, and uh, the, the topic of Andrew Horvath came up, and I, I mentioned at that time, I said, I th- she's already written a resignation speech. Uh, I really, I said, because the, the stories we were hearing is if you, she wasn't going to become premier, she will, there's, they, they want her to step down. And there's been a lot of internal pressure, too, that, uh, of course, you don't talk about that when you're doing the, uh, the concession speech. Uh, but that seemed to be uh, the, 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 something where the die had been cast on quite some time. You either win or you're out. Uh, which is pretty harsh, but that's politics, I guess. Anyway, to uh, decipher that and a lot of other things happened last night during the campaign. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Best, a publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Uh, were you surprised last night by the turnout and by the result? Uh, no, I, I certainly wasn't surprised at the result. I mean, the polls had been telling us that right from the get-go. If there, if there was a, a slight surprise, I suppose it is that Ford ended up with over 40% of the of the vote when uh, most of the polls were talking 37 38 39 so slight variation there uh, but the local results uh, i think were pretty much uh, to be expected we we knew that hamilton east stony creek was going to be in play 
and uh, just overall, uh, uh, I, I would say probably the conservatives picked up three or four more seats than than had been predicted uh, provincially. But it was pretty much a let's face it. I mean, the polls uh, were pretty much telling the story from two weeks before the rip was dropped. So not not a big surprise. I guess I guess the other the one area that would be a surprise, though, is I thought the liberals would do a little better. I thought they would return to uh, official party status and the fact that they were only able to squeak out one more seat than they had. That, that, that's a crushing uh, defeat for that party. And they, they really have to get back to the drawing board and figure out who they are. What do you read into that? Uh, um, it's one thing to, I guess, rationalize this, say, okay, they got tired of Kathleen Wynne. Uh, let's boot her out, which they did, of course. And Doug Ford won that election a few years ago. Uh, but there's still something going on there with the liberals. And have they lost touch with the electorate? I mean, you know, this, this was a party that was in power for a number of years and seemed to be resonating. I, I don't know if Kathleen Wynne is going to, I guess, shoulder all the blame for that, uh, for some of her policies. Uh, the, some of the liberal insiders I've talked to said she'd moved the party way too far to the left uh, for the, uh, the comfort of a lot of liberals who, I think, all of a sudden, especially in this election, John, started to kind of feel comfortable with Doug Ford. You know, this was a guy that, uh, you know, when he first took office and when he, you know, won the election, not this one, but the one before, uh, there were the stories, you know, he was Mike Harris reinvented and all sorts of things about that. Well, he's not the bogeyman anymore. Uh, he gets along fine with Justin Trudeau, apparently, and he, he and Christia Freeland have a great relationship. So I think disenchanted liberals kind of felt comfortable, like, yeah, we can park our vote here. And I think that's what happened yesterday. I talked to a party uh, uh, worker uh, today and uh, uh, about the, the race in Hamilton East Stony Creek. And uh, the comment was uh, the people that used to vote for Tony Valeri voted for Neil Lumsden. Um, th there's a message here for not only the provincial liberals who are really in, in terrible shape, frankly, but I think there's a message here for the federal liberals as well that um, when you when you move the party to the extremes, um, especially to the left, people are going to vote NDP. They're, they'll vote for the real thing. They're, they're not going to vote for a party that's, that's trying to emulate uh, being like the NDP. So I, I think there's a, there's a message here. Um, all, all of these so-called issues, uh, the Highway 13, for instance, um, every riding that that road, if it ever gets built, is running through, uh, went totally blue, and that included two pickups from the other parties. So there, there's something going on here in terms of ideology. Maybe we've reached the high watermark when it comes to, uh, you know, identity politics and ideology. Maybe people, having come through two years of the pandemic, they just want sensible, what we used to call good government. That, that may be uh, a big piece of this. But... Um, Certainly uh, for the PCs, they picked up seats uh, in Windsor. They took two seats from the NDP. They picked up a seat in uh, a couple of seats in Northern Ontario that I think are, are directly linked to, in one case, uh, getting a train going into Northern Ontario. In the other case, I think it's the, uh, this Ring of Fire project that Ford was talking about. Uh, you know, bread and butter issues seem to be a big piece of uh, what happened last night. Uh, there's a, another element that I wanted to run by you here, John. 
I, I'm, I'm getting the sense just from what I've heard on this show over the last number of years, and, and I'm talking federally and provincially, and probably we could even throw in some municipal aspects of this. I, I think voters are tired of extremist politics. I think they're tired of the sniping. Uh, they're tired of the people that are polarizing. And, and it, uh, after a point, you just say enough is enough. Uh, and as Don Martin wrote in the National Post today, and I used uh, the quote from my in my commentary earlier this morning, they looked at Doug Ford and they said, okay, here's the guy. He's He ran a campaign that was not too progressive and not too conservative, if, if you understand the contradiction there. And they felt comfortable with that. And not unlike what Bill Davis and John Robarts did. Uh, I'm not suggesting Doug Ford's going to be in power for 42 years like those guys were. But it was a comfort zone that I think he established. And I, I don't know if it was Doug Ford's idea or the party hierarchy that said this is the way we're going to run the campaign. But I think it's what voters were looking for right now, like enough of the hype, enough of the BS. Uh, yeah, we we think, you know, you weren't great in this past term. You know, you didn't blow us away. You made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but, you know, we're tired of the polarization. You know, so yeah, yeah, let's build some roads. Let's get some jobs. And And to that point, I think one of the other things that still has to be talked about here is the way that organized labor and unionized labor and high-skilled labor have gravitated to the Conservative Party. That's never happened before. We saw it here in Hamilton. Um, the NDP is going through a, a little bit of a crisis of um, uh, a, a existential crisis. It's not as bad as the provincial liberals, but we're now seeing a split between labor labor and white-collar labor in, in terms of uh, supporting the NDP. Uh, so the people that build things and do things are, are now moving towards the conservatives because the conservatives are uh, launching all these uh, construction and, and all these projects that, that uh, appeal to uh, either uh, manufacturing workers or construction workers. And, and really the NDP is left with the teachers, the, uh, all, all the public sector unions. And uh, so it, it's kind of ironic in a sense uh, with, with Andrea Horvat that, you know, she booted uh, what you'd call an old time labor person in Paul Miller. But in a sense, she comes from that background as well. And what's left of, of her caucus now are more of these downtown Toronto, um, you know, very uh, left uh, people. And to some degree, the party is is moving away from uh, the old line uh, uh, labor type people, which sort of includes her. So um, it was interesting to see her comments last night. Um, you know, you you sense that maybe some of that was resonating with her as well. Well, look at a couple of examples, and you talked about here in southern Ontario, and and we saw this on some of the clips that have been running through the campaign. Uh, and, and one of the most influential air groups there is, is LIUNA, Labor's International Union. Uh, Joe Mancinelli, of course, who's uh, the, the, the head of that union, uh, they have traditionally been liberal supporters, constantly, federally and provincially. Uh, Kathleen Wynne pissed them off in a big way, and, and he's moved over to Doug Ford and the Conservatives, and that's a huge amount of, of support, because you know, that's not just a, a local Hamilton entity, that's that's Canadian, that's North American, uh, and, and they... they, they have a lot of muscle and i know that you know in some circles they were saying well these two highway projects are wrong because of this and but they're jobs uh a lot of, a lot of people in that union and other unions are going to be working for a long time on those highway projects uh and and the same thing with the auto workers i mean traditionally as you say that's been an ndp support 
uh, you know, going back to Buzz Hargrove and, and to see Jerry Dias. Well, he's not there anymore, but the union is still there because uh, they're saying, hey, look at what he's bringing in here. Look at the investment. You know, when Doug Ford first started in his first six months, we were talking plant closures in Oshawa and other, and the auto industry was in deep, deep peril. Now it's been rejuvenated and they figure, hey, you know, okay, he's got our back. You, you get some stuff like that. So some of it was serendipity, but I'm sure a lot of it was, was strategic to make sure that this is what happened. And and they have turned the dynamic around here, as you said, about who's going to support whom these days. And And I don't know if the other two parties didn't notice it and didn't. I realized the impact it was going to have, but I think it was a huge factor. Not only with the unions, but but that resonates br- more broadly with the public. They see that. They see uh, this discussion about opening up the ring of fire, whatever that ends up being. But talking about, uh, you know, even if you're not in those unions, you're a, a citizen just paying attention. You see uh, a government that's on a, a, a building, a job creation uh, trajectory, and then and then you hear you hear rhetoric uh, uh, from the others. It's really just you know that's one of the disadvantages of being an opposition party. You can make promises where Ford ran on his budget, and uh, and and he didn't need a platform. His platform was the budget, and it had all kinds of job creating measures in it. So, really, when you look at the numbers uh, from last night, it's it's probably not a surprise that he's increased his seat count. Uh, you know, the first time around, it was Kathleen Wynne that was on the ballot, and that was the ballot question. But uh, this time, he was running on his record, and he increased his seat count. I want to phrase this properly. I feel badly to a certain extent for Stephen Del Duca, who's only been on the job for two years, uh, and and I've historically i've my friend our friend steve pakin told me this some months ago that del duca wanted this job even before kathleen Wynne left i think i think it was always part of his long-term plan and there's nothing the matter with ambition but he was the wrong guy at the wrong time for this party uh liberals and ndp tend to want somebody that they can really gravitate to that somebody who can lead them who's inspiring and i i just don't think he strikes that chord not just with voters but with liberals you know, he made the best speech of the campaign with his concession speech last night. There was energy. There was a little bit of fire there. And um, I, I, I'm with you. I, as, as we get into the last day or two of these campaigns, I, maybe it's because I once ran and, and was not successful, but I always have a little bit of a soft spot for the people that you're pretty sure are not going to win. Uh, I looked around Hamilton here at some of the candidates that, that didn't win, and I'm talking about some of the new candidates who uh, who were recruited uh, mainly to run for the Liberals, but uh, some of the other parties. And you look at their credentials, and you say, you know, these are people that that really could do a good job if they could ever get elected. So there, and and you know, Del Duca. Let's face it, what what a rough slog he he. The one thing he did do. Uh, was uh, he erased the party's debt, and I think that's a, a miracle, really, for a party that got just absolutely crushed. So he, he's improved their finances, I th- and, and I was prepared to come on this show today and say, well, he got them back to party status, but he didn't. So it's, uh, it's you know, when, when you're down, you're down. Politics is rough, and... Uh, this is reminiscent of some of those liberal leaders we had before Trudeau got elected. It's just uh, uh, really, there's just no no good news about it at all. 
Well, I was thinking that very same thing last night, actually, John. I know we're almost out of time. Uh, you know, Paul Martin got booted out. She had a lot more to do with uh, John Cretchen and, and the sponsorship scandal than it did with Paul Martin, although he was a great finance minister, not such a good prime minister. But then they went through Stefan Dion and Ignatieff, and they figured, you guys don't get it. Uh, you know, you need somebody and who's, who's going to, you know, spark something going on here. Uh, and on the other side of the coin, I think the, the, the conservatives, as Bill Davis said one time, uh, bland is good. Bland works in Ontario. And I think that's what they tried to do to Doug Ford. Pulled him back, get him away from the microphones, uh, and just, you know, be bland. And and, and that's, that's steady as she goes, I guess, seems to be the theme right now. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. There's a lot more to talk about here. Uh, you know, where your Duke is going to go, Andrew Horvath's future, but uh, we got a lot of time for that in the days ahead. Uh, as always, John, uh, thanks so much. Uh, the good news is we didn't have to stay up real late to find out what was going on last night. Uh, but no. there's a lot more to come on this. Uh, and uh, you have a great weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Nice talking. And John Best, John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, with his rundown of what happened in the provincial election. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This weekend marks 100 days uh, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, has addressed the Luxembourg Parliament, calling for more pressure on Russia. Zelensky says Ukraine needs more modern weapons, which, he adds, will ensure the superiority of our country over Russia in this war in courage and intelligence, and also in technology. He as well calls for more sanctions against Russia. Then reporting on the fighting, he said more than 20% of Ukrainian territory is now under Russian control, adding, this is much larger than the area of all the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg combined. I'm Charles Diladesma. Uh, not the first time that uh, President Zelensky has been asking for more weaponry and more support militarily and otherwise. But there's some concern right now in some circles that perhaps the uh, uh, the support that uh, the West has been showing, and not just NATO, but of course many other countries, uh, may be waning and maybe people's attitudes are changing. Uh, the interesting piece about this in the Post this week, uh, Diane Francis, of course, uh, is the editor-at-large at the National Post, uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Diane, great to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. No problem. Glad to be here. Let's, let's talk a little bit about where we are this right now. And we remember the outpouring of support from uh, the Biden administration, certainly from the Trudeau administration here and many other countries that said, look, we got your back. This is terrible what's happening here. Uh, we got weapons and we've had just about all of these people, Diane, making announcements about the money that they're going to spend on humanitarian aids. Uh, we're going to send them this weaponry. The question that I guess a lot of us has not asked, and I think it's a legitimate follow-up question, is that stuff getting there? Is it helping them? Well, uh, the the information that that I, I that's come to my attention, and I'm not you know on the ground there, of course, by any stretch, is that the uh, weaponry uh, that the United States promised, which was an enormous amount, um, still hasn't arrived in the battlefield, and that could be because the Russians are bombing the heck out of all the railways and air, air mm-hmm. airports and so on. Um, it's not because of any you know incompetence or delay on purpose. So, you know, I think what we're talking about is, is a, a, a black hole of need. Uh, they are just getting decimated by the Russians. And, of course, they're using all their ammunition and all their weaponry that they have up. They're using it up very quickly. And so that may account for the fact that, you know, they're, they're sort of begging them to, to rush it even more and to give them even more weaponry. It, it's a very grim situation. 
Well, and that's one of the stories that I found quite bothering. And, and we all knew about the siege at Mariupol that went on for quite some time. And, and a large segment of the Ukraine uh, forces that were held up in that uh, were told surrender because they ran out of ammunition. Uh, that, that's not the kind of support that they'd be looking for. Yeah, I think I think that uh, what we're really looking at and and all you have to do, although the world didn't follow the Syrian uh, the, the destru- destruction of the country of Syria as closely as they could have or should have, but he he completely decimated Syria. The Russians did to help uh, al-Assad. And, you know, he just, a, a, a city like Aleppo, size of Kiev, um, you know, a couple of million people, it was absolutely reduced through artillery bombardment into rubble. And we don't even know the number of people that died. And five million Syrians fled to Europe and another four million are still in refugee camps in Turkey and Jordan. So this is the scale of magnitude of, of the things that this man is has done in the past and he's about and he's still doing it and th- this is this is really not war so much as genocide he does not want the ethnic group of ukraine to exist he doesn't want the country to exist and he doesn't care what he does to to destroy everything um and you know if if you look at it it's it's just shocking that cities of 400,000 mariupol other cities of 300,000 100,000 don't exist anymore and that's what he's doing. So, you know, the need is enormous and the Ukrainians are still willing to go and, and continue to try and fight and push him out. And so I think it behooves the West to, to you know, hurry up and, and send additional help. I know in the early days of, of the invasion, uh, you know, the question being asked by an awful lot of the people was, well, what's, what's Putin's long-term goal here? And... Uh, and then the, you know, juxtapose that against uh, some of the criticisms saying, well, they don't seem to have much of a plan uh, because they were wandering around there. You know, that we thought this was going to be a four or five day conflict and now we're into day 100. But as a result, you know, what was it about a month ago, I guess, Diane, uh, they announced that it was going to be a new Russian head of, of the invasion of the Russian forces there, whose nickname was, as a lot of us, the Butcher of Syria. Uh, who was the author, I guess, of a lot of the, the genocide and the destruction that they did in Syria. We didn't pay much attention to it. That was a story for about a day or so. But what we're seeing since then, as you say, the bombing of, of uh, schools, of hospitals, is is exactly a mirror image of what we saw in Syria. It's, it's it, it kind of reminds us, and I guess uh, in the case that maybe one of the stated goals here, as you said, was just to wipe these people out. Uh, you know, the, the civilian population. This is not a war against the Ukrainian army. It's a, it's a war against the people. Of, of Ukraine. Oh yeah, no. This is this is uh, this is a horrific situation, and um, you know, I, I when I say I worry about waning interest in it because of news cycles. Uh, you know, how how many times can we continue to watch this on TV? Do we want to watch it? Do we want to think or talk about it? But you know, the point is that the West has formed the strongest alliance probably post war. And, and so that's important. And the Europeans are really, really upset and they're united and they're doing great things. Uh, so can't underestimate that. And, you know, they are, Germany now is rearming itself for the first time since the Second World War. Japan is doing the same thing because of the China threat. Um, so you've got two of the wealthiest countries in the world, the third and fourth biggest economies in the world that are remilitarizing because of Russia. And it's fooling around in the world, including with China. 
So, you know, we've got, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but, but that's the way it is. And I just, my heart goes out to the poor Ukrainians because they're the victims. They're caught in the middle. And for all kinds of good reasons, I guess, the West can't actually put boots on the ground there. But boy, they should be sending as much as they can. Well, and I, I know when you talk about news cycles, that may be kind of inside baseball to some of our listeners, but the reality <laughs> is, it's it's where is the interest going right now? Because, I mean, we talked about Ukraine, we heard about Ukraine day and night uh, during the first few weeks of this invasion, and and, and I think it, it helped build sympathy and empathy for what was going on. Uh, but you want to talk about news cycles, I mean, what are we talking about? What were the news cycles in North America for about the last two and a half weeks now? It's been gun violence. It's been mass murders in schools and, and, and grocery stores. And, and that's pushed the Ukraine situation, the Ukraine crisis, to the, to the back pages. And, and you know, the, it's not the lead story anymore. And when interest like that starts to wane, that, that can only be bad news for the people that are waging that battle. Well, it, it isn't good news, but Zelensky is a, a, a master communicator. And he, he, you know, he's out there doing outreach, you know, addressing the Luxembourg Parliament. He's going to be continuing to do that and keep it alive. And, you know, he's so effective at it that, you know, Ukraine has never had a leader like that that's put the country on the map. Most people before this war started, I must say, not necessarily in Canada, where we have a lot of Slavic population, but in the United States, I, I don't think a lot of Americans could have pointed it out on a map unless it was labeled. And they certainly didn't know how to spell it. And so now they know that it's a big, important country full of wonderful people who are being innocently, you know, cannon fodder to this maniac that's running the Kremlin. And he's got to go. And I think the whole world is starting to realize that. And it's just not Ukraine. Now he's you know, he's spreading a famine all over the world by blockading Ukraine's grain from getting out through the ports. And that's this is intentional. Um, this guy is trouble wherever he is, and he's everywhere. And so I think that <clears throat> I don't want to use the World War III label, but we're in a soft World War III. Well, and, and not only is he using the blockade for the Ukraine uh, grains, but at the same time, he also announced last week that he's not going to be exporting any of their product. Uh, it's going to be used for internal consumption, and that's that's going to be even more of a problem for a number of Asians, including African nations, by the way. A number of them are going to be juxtaposed uh, and put in a very precarious position. So what's the Biden administration response to this? Uh, you've heard that some of the retired generals are saying there should be an armed flotilla that's, that's going to get these, these grain shipments going again. And and again, Biden is, at, is reticent to do any of that because he says, well, that's going to be an active war against Russia. Uh, because uh, as you said, if you're going to put the, an armed flotilla there, they got to be ready to fire on the Russian ships. And I don't think they're ready to do that. Yeah, well, that's being that's also a matter of negotiation uh, yeah. because a treaty called the Montreux Treaty, Turkey controls access into and out of the Black Sea and won't allow warships in there. Uh, any Any kind of warships or any ship at all if they think that it'll, you know, foment a, a naval battle off the shore of Ukraine or their shores. So you've got to, they're negotiating with the Russians and they're negotiating, negotiating with the Ukrainian government as to how they can, you know, pull this off. And of course, it just shows you how evil Putin is for him to say that he's not going to export Russia's grain, which, which, and because they're going to use it for their own consumption, when in actual fact, three quarters of their grain is exported. So this is a weaponization of food 
on, on a global scale. And the United Nations estimates that we've got about 110 million people at risk because of, because of what Russia's doing. 110 million people, in, mostly in Africa and in the Middle East. Diane, how hurtful is it when you get a comment from, for instance, Henry Kissinger, um, who's suggesting that maybe it's time for Ukraine to simply lay down their arms and, and cede more land to, to Russia and, and try to negotiate a peace? I know you, in the piece, uh, in, the, in the post, you reference uh, some comments from a friend of yours, or actually Akira Rudik, who's a, a member of the Ukraine parliament, who's suggesting how ludicrous that is. Uh, now, Bob, now, Kissinger does not speak for the American administration, but to have those comments being floated out there, it can only be hurtful, I would think. Well, I, it's appalling, but I'm not a fan of Kissinger. Kissinger's a war criminal, uh, and you know, and, and along with Nixon, should have been tried for that, because of the bombing they undertook in Laos and uh, Cambodia and Vietnam against civilians, and they did it secretly. They didn't even they lied to the American people while they were doing it. So <clears throat> this is a monstrous man himself, who, by the way, is a pal of Putin's, who who has dinner with him regularly and is probably on his payroll. So, I mean, that's what I pointed out. I have a newsletter and I wrote a, a piece about, uh, I, I called it Kissinger versus Soros because George Soros has said, you know, you can't do anything with, you, you have to defeat Putin. The world has to defeat Putin. That's his position. That's the priority. And then there's Kissinger on the other hand saying, we got to pander to Putin. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, Kissinger is, um, is a completely discredited person. And, you know, he's been behind a number of other genocides, one, one involving Pakistan and Bangladesh. So this is, a, this is an evil man who hangs around with an evil man. And so why he has any credibility whatsoever uh, in, in, in anybody's mind is beyond me. He certainly does in my, in, in my case. And as you point out in the piece, Putin has never negotiated in, in good faith ever. So why would he do it this time? Well, of course he won't. And, and he, he, look, he wants, he wants Ukraine, period, full stop, the whole thing. He's not going to stop until he does. So he has to be stopped. Uh, and who knows what after that? I mean, you know, I, I know there's concern in Poland these days and you thought he wouldn't attack a NATO nation. Uh, I, I don't think you can count on anything uh, from a, a standpoint like that. I mean, you know, he's emboldened by these moves. Uh, and who knows what the next step might be if, in fact, he's successful in Ukraine. Well, I think he's already attacked Poland. I think I think he's already attacked uh, Europe. I mean, Europe's economies are are on the verge of recession because of exorbitant energy prices and food prices that he's caused. It's it's now reeling from the effects of having to absorb about four million refugees and pay for their room and board. It's it's you know it's it's devastating, and 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 he has already attacked indirectly Europe, and that's of course his aim. His, his ultimate aim. Well, and we've seen this happen with his reaction, too, to the Scandinavian countries who are seeking uh, membership in NATO right now. Uh, the day after they announced that, he turned off the gas. Uh, and and that, you know, that this is June now. What happens in Europe if this is continues, Diane, and we get into September, October, November, where it gets cold uh, and, and people don't have fuel? I mean, the, the, Oh, they're scrambling. They're, they're scrambling for oil and gas now. So what's happened is, is Germany just signed a deal to do some drilling in the North Sea off, off Netherlands. Uh, this was drilling that because the environmentalists made such a fuss over probably nothing uh, was abandoned. So they're going to do it. They have to do it. Uh, LNG plants are being built in the United States galore. Canada's a joke, by the way. Uh, we're not doing anything. 
and and we're a big oil and gas producer. I mean, Canada has it within its power to make a big difference here, but we don't have a prime minister that understands much except getting elected again. So you, you've got a situation where uh, the Germans are scrambling, the Italians, everybody is scrambling for oil and very meaningfully, uh, Joe Biden, I think in, in the next two weeks is going to Saudi Arabia to make amends with the prince there who he, he blasted for being a pariah and because he needs them to turn on the taps. And they turn on the taps, they'll lower the price of oil and gas for everybody and also be able to replenish and supply uh, Europe's economy uh, going through winter. Because believe me, um, Russia wins winters. They always beat their enemy in winters and another mm -hmm. one moon. And you're quite right. So there's a scramble going on. And I think every, every country in Europe now has a ration plan uh, ready to go for that eventuality. In other words, you're going to start to see uh, third shifts shut down in factories, people not allowed to drive a car more than one day a week. All of this is going to have to happen because otherwise, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be in big trouble and, and we, can't, we can't keep feeding the beast. Has there been any discussion, I'm assuming behind closed doors, because nobody's certainly done a, any overt reconsiderations here, about pipeline policies? That maybe, whoops, maybe we acted too harshly. Maybe we were, we should have waited. I mean, the circumstances have changed uh, from the time that Biden simply said, we're not going to build that. We're going to try to get in the way of this one. The world needs that product right now. I, there's got to be some pressure, I would think, from some sources right now to say, you've got to think about this again. Well, uh, not in North America. Again, remember, the Americans are the biggest producers of oil and gas on the planet. Mm -hmm. Canada's about third or fourth. Uh, so we're completely self-sufficient. I mean, we buy, we stupidly buy stuff from the Saudis and, and have done from the Russians and other horrible regimes because, you know, Quebec didn't want a pipeline. And so that's how Quebec and the Maritimes are getting getting their oil. And that's from these hideous, hideous regimes. Uh, instead of using Canadian oil, that's 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 on us. I mean, that's the stupidity of us. What, do I think that's going to change? Not with this prime minister. Interesting, and and I, I'm glad that we had some time to talk about this today because I thought, you know, this has got to be front and center again. You know, I, I agree with you about news cycles, and that can change public opinion very quickly, uh, just because other things pop up, and uh, it's it's unfortunate. I, I, listen, I, I, we're almost out of time, but I just while I have you, I asked that. Uh, very quickly ask you uh, about the Ontario election last night and, and your impressions on that. You've always told us in the past, uh, Bay Street likes stability when it comes to government, especially in, in challenging times like this. Does the result last night uh, increase our possibilities of, of, of a smoother economic recovery as we go forward? Uh, Doug Ford is good news. Uh, he's a good politician. He's a good human being. And he's got his eye on the prize when it comes to creating jobs. That's his, that's his biggest um, a goal is to get people working and making money and the economy turning over and investing strategically for future technologies and to support our auto auto industry, which is very critical. I mean, this is a good guy. And so it, it just shows you that with the right leader, um, you can get the people behind you. Uh, the problem with Canada federally is, of course, Quebec, period. Mm -hmm. It always puts in the prime minister it chooses, and Quebec is run by separatists and socialists, and that's Canada's biggest problem. Diane, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. 
You're welcome. Take care. Take care. Diane Francis, of course, editor-at-large with the National Post. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.